the asset itself is creating nothing. I think it's a scumball activity. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. All the rage, but what the hell is it? The technical answer in Bitcoins is that Bitcoins is a remarkable cryptographic achievement. It, it is a huge deal. It's a huge, huge, huge deal. If people have got lots of Bitcoins and they want to go to space, um, I'd much rather they um, spend that money on our spaceship. Thanks for tuning in to the second episode of Bitcoin Briefly, a beginner-friendly podcast about economics, technology, and the people involved in Bitcoin. I'm your host, Max, a Swedish university student, a aspiring developer, and a total, total Bitcoin geek for the past 12 months. So the goal with Bitcoin Briefly is to create a great resource for other people just getting interested in Bitcoin and just want to figure out what the hell it is. And my plan to do that is through talking to some of the people that definitely knows more about it than me. And today's guest is definitely one of those. I met Kalle at a Bitcoin conference called Baltic Honey Badger in Riga a couple of weeks ago. And after he told me about the book he's been writing, I figured he would be the perfect guest to bring on now in the beginning. Just to explain some of the basics of Bitcoin. Even though us both being pretty new to this podcast interview thing, I think it turned out great and I hope you learned something new. And please, please share it on if you enjoyed it. Hello, Kalle. Uh, thanks again for coming on as the first guest on Bitcoin Briefly. I figured we would uh, start off uh, by you telling a bit about your background and how you got involved in Bitcoin. Hi, and thank you for letting me be on this show. Um, yeah, my name is Kalle Rosenbaum. I, um, my background is I'm, I've been a software developer for 20 years or so. Uh, working for various companies on just normal software developments. But in 2013, I started uh, looking into Bitcoin. I heard about it from a friend or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I started looking into it. And just as uh, everybody else, I dis- dismissed it at first. Uh, but half a year later, I, I looked into it more and... Um, got really hooked and when I actually understood what it's all about. Um, yeah, so I've been working with Bitcoin since uh, 2015. I started my own uh, consultancy company in 2015, um, where I do various uh, development work around Bitcoin and Bitcoin-like uh, technology. Um, and for for the last two years, I've been working on this uh, new book called Grokking Bitcoin uh, that's coming out soonish, <laughs> uh, maybe uh, hopefully December. Okay, good yes. uh, good timing with the Christmas then. Yeah, uh, that's uh, my hope. Actually, our hope was to have it out uh, in March already, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. it didn't go that way. So. Okay. So you said you in the beginning you dismissed Bitcoin. Uh, do you remember why? Uh, no, I don't remember. It's just uh, it's just uh, new stuff coming out all the time, claiming to solve different problems, and I just figured, wow, nah, uh, uh, just just another thing that people want to hype. I I, I don't know why really. Yeah, I mean, I I usually dismiss stuff at first. 
Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting that almost everyone you talk about uh, involved in Bitcoin has the same story that they dismissed it the first time, so first couple of times, and then uh, then got hooked and haven't uh, released it since then. Yeah, exactly. I figured talk about your book first, Grokking Bitcoin. First of all, uh, Grokking is a is a completely new word for me. Uh, could you elaborate on that word? Uh, well, actually, not really. <laughs> it's a, it's a slang for uh, to to understand something on the on a deeper level. Uh, it comes from a book. Uh, I don't remember the title of the book. Actually, um, I think it was some kind of uh, of science fiction novel. Who actually coined the term grok and. Uh, Manning, my my publisher Manning, they have a series of books called Grokking books. So they have a Grokking algorithms, they have Grokking deep learning, and so forth, and Grokking Bitcoin now. So, ah, okay. so I, I didn't choose this title. It, it's uh, it's actually part of a series of books from Manning. Ah, that, that, so, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, but I like uh, the title. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, um, who did you write it for? Uh, I write it for. Developers and uh, more important, more importantly, non-developers. So developers and non-developers wanting to understand how Bitcoin works on a on a deeper level. I actually explains it exactly how it works without uh, without using analogies and stuff. Just just trying to explain the technology without using code samples. I used a lot of illustrations, figures, and it's uh, highly example driven. You know, Alice wants to pay one Bitcoin to Bob, so forth, starting there. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, you know, easy to grasp examples. Uh, sorry, what was your question again? <laughs> uh, I was asking about the target audience. Uh, I think that was a yeah, perfect answer. And uh, I think I read that it will be uh, released as open source. Is that correct? That is correct, exactly. Uh, it's going to be on the... Uh, it's going to be released under a Creative Commons non-commercial license uh, at latest three months after publication of the book. Okay, and uh, what's the what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, good question. Um, I was very inspired by by the work of Andreas Antonopoulos, his book Mastering Bitcoin, which I enjoyed very much. Um, uh, he released it under open source license, and I think it was a great idea. I think <clears throat> I well, I want to reach out with this book to as many people as possible. Obviously, uh, I don't. I'm not in it to make money because I don't think you make any money from writing a book. It actually costs me a lot of money. If I could just use this time to do consultancy work instead, it would just <laughs> be much more lucrative. <laughs> but. <laughs> But uh, so basically, I'm writing this book more or less for free. So I think that that uh, I might I might just as well release it open source, so that as many people as possible can see, read the book. And I also think that it will increase my at least paper book sales because uh, uh, people like to you know flip through the pages of a book before buying it. And they can do that on the open source version before they buy it. It might have some negative impact on the ebook sales, but um, I'm not so sure about how much that would be. I, 
Yeah. The main the main purpose is to reach out and give back to the community because I, I have uh, gotten so much from this community over the years so uh, that I'm very grateful for. So uh, a lot of people do a lot of work and put it out on the internet for free uh, and I want to do the same. I think it's a great model of, of sharing knowledge. Yeah, I think, I think that sounds like a, a great idea. Uh, Andreas Antonopoulos was uh, basically how I got into Bitcoin. By He has some really good uh, talks and also I got his book, Mastering Bitcoin. So apparently, yeah, even though it's open source, uh, I think if it's good enough and it's valuable, I think people will uh, pay for it as well. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I, I think his book did really well uh, in terms of sales. Even even though it's open source, but he's he's got a he's got a slight advantage there because he's uh, more of a rock star in the community, <laughs> so he he's got you know a bit of automatic publicity there there from the start. I, I uh, think he has like <laughs> half half a million followers on Twitter, yeah. so it's it's yeah. kind of huge for. I have uh, like uh, a thousand followers. <laughs> so. Well, maybe maybe after the book is released, it's gonna explode. Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I can, uh, to anyone uh, listening on this, uh, check out Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, kind of hard to spell, but I think he's easy to find. He's on YouTube, and yeah, I think he has a website as well. Yeah, and he's it, a great inspiration for people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's kind of impressive how he, I heard he doesn't have like scripts for his talks. He just he just goes, uh, goes for it, and it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anyways, I figured uh, we start about um, we're talking about uh, in this episode uh, giving an, an overview of Bitcoin. Uh, so, uh, how would you explain Bitcoin to someone completely new to the space? Uh, yeah, th- that's the hardest part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I would explain Bitcoin as uh, as uh, uh, global internet money, permissionless global internet money. Uh, I, and when I say internet money, I, I mean that it's money that you can use when you have a, an internet connection. If you have an internet connection, you can use this money you, and you don't have to ask anyone for permission to use it. And, and it's also global. So global internet money. Uh, so money over the internet for anyone to use. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's... Uh... Yeah. That sounds. I think that gets people interested for sure. Um, so about this, um, you said permission um, or oh, permissionless is basically what it is. And why why is that needed with internet money? Ordinary money, old money, fiat money, as we call it, uh, are so-called permissioned money or permission systems. Uh, in order to have a bank account, you need to ask the bank for permission, obviously, and uh, the bank has to follow a lot of different rules to to uh, uh, to be able to run their service. Otherwise, they will be shut down by the government. So, uh, a, in order for for a person to have a, to get a bank account, they need to show proper documentation, and they need to, you know, fo- follow the fit into the into the uh, customer template that they have so so to speak about 38% of the world population uh, doesn't have a bank bank account at all and uh, 
even more than that doesn't have access to to uh, to uh, financial advanced financial services like uh, loans or international payments or stuff like that yeah that's a that's a ma- massive problem yeah yeah uh, so th- th- those people either they don't want a bank account but uh, well the, the best guess is that they think they can't get a bank account uh, for various reasons because it could be that banking services are too expensive or uh, you need to show identification that you don't have or you might be denied bank accounts because you have the wrong uh, uh, sexual preferences or uh, political views or ethnicity or, or skin color. Uh, I mean, we live in Sweden, it's a pretty uh, developed country and uh, well, to some measure, to some degree, uh, a very free country. It's not like that everywhere in the world. And Bitcoin doesn't solve any problems in in, in our uh, developed society. Bitcoin solves problems for uh, the third world where those problems with, with uh, uh, corruption are enormous. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that really touches on the... Um what um, got me interest, interested into Bitcoin um, and uh, how, how useful it could be for people um, who actually need it the most because uh, having, uh, having your own bank account is pretty damn important if you want to start, uh, say, a business or uh, yeah, just uh, have your money safe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, if you don't have a bank account, you are stuck in a cash-only society which means that you can only do business in your local community exactly where you live. Uh, you can't expand your business across the internet or across borders uh, because you don't have access to bank accounts. So uh, this, this is a huge problem for the segregation. It's a huge segregation problem between people who are banked and people who are unbanked. Yeah, and that, that touches as well as into the other thing you said about it being uh, global money. Um, in Well, in today's world, we're all, um, talking about all the time how globalization is uh, increasing, but we still don't have uh, any global money, or we didn't have, have it before Bitcoin at least. So why, why do you think having a global money is important? Yeah, uh, well, uh, we did have global money before. It's called gold, uh, but uh, but uh, it's it's uh, not practical money uh, to use on a day-to-day basis. But uh, sorry, your question again was um, yeah. So why why is it important to have a, a global money? Do you think? Yeah, uh, well, I don't think it's actually important to have a global money. It's important to be able to transact globally. <laughs> Uh, and that could be done with, through multiple currencies, of course. Uh, but uh, I think it's having a global money is is more uh, convenient, uh, and it will get it. It will. Un- I think it will unite uh, unite the, the the world around a, a single common language, common money, money language that everybody understands. Uh, I think it will reduce a lot of friction in international trade and uh, uh, commerce. I don't think we, we must have global money, 
but it's more practical to have global money. <laughs> yeah, it, it would uh, definitely make it easier to travel. Yeah, for example. And uh, and the whole foreign exchange uh, market will be, yeah, <laughs> non-existent. <laughs> yes, yeah, obsolete. Yes. And, uh, well, as it is today with with uh, uh, national currencies uh, to send money from Sweden to uh, to uh, the Philippines, for example, will cost me about 15. It depends on, on, on if, if I want to send a thousand Swedish crowns to the Philippines, uh, if they if the if the recipient can't uh, doesn't have a bank account, uh, so they they need to receive cash in on their end. Uh, it will cost me about 10 to 15 percent in fees just to get the money to my to my peer in in the Philippines, and that's uh, that's huge. <laughs> that's a lot of money, uh, especially if you're poor, to pay 10 to 15 percent to the to the money transmitter. Yeah, that's that's the really nasty thing about uh, remittances that uh, it has massive fees and it's takes time and uh, it, it really hurts uh, the poorest uh, ones in the society that needs it yeah and I also want to say that uh, yeah the fees are high but but they also do uh, uh, since it's since it's cash uh, they they take on some risk there with a, with a physical risk because they, they need to have an, an, an office with people in it uh, with the risk of robbery and all that uh, where, pe- where people can get, go to, to get their cash. Uh, so, so they actually they, they need people actually uh, making these uh, payments to, to, the, to the Philippine person I'm, I'm sending the money to. So, so they do actually need to spend spend a lot of money to to make this transaction happen. I'm not I'm not sure they they take, charge this out of uh, pure greed. It's it's actually it actually costs money for them to to transmit this money. Um, but with Bitcoin, it wouldn't obviously be needed. No, no, exactly. Um... That's a th- that's a thing as well. I think people have a hard time grasping that because we have digital money today. Like um, no one in Sweden uses cash anymore. Uh, yeah, exactly. I tried to buy um, buy a coffee at a coffee place in, in Stockholm today, and they wouldn't uh, accept my cash. <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah, I I, I I am not sure what I think about that development, but uh, yeah, no, I, I the more the, the less the less you can use your money, the more the government will will see every little uh, thing you do, every every little chewing gum you buy. They will record it. It will be recorded somewhere by by someone. Um, so people can't transact uh, anonymously anymore. It's at least in Sweden. Yeah, and. Uh massive problem that is uh, private companies as well that's building uh, out the whole uh, infrastructure with payments and they can basically charge any fee they like for the services they use uh, so. yeah yeah once money is out of the once uh, uh, cash is out of the equation uh, those companies they will get a 
pretty good oligopoly at least <laughs> uh, where they can uh, yeah charge basically whatever they want for their services and yeah. we will sit in their in their lap need to just obey them <laughs> yeah and uh, if uh, russia attacks they know where to go <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, I mean, cash, cash, uh, cash is a great means of payment. Uh, it works really well, and have have worked, has worked for a very long time. Um, I think, I think, uh, I think Sweden is going in the wrong direction here. Yeah, I think we, I think we both uh, agree on that. But most people probably don't see the the issues with it. Um, no, most people are happy with it. They think it's great, you know. They can use this Swish app that we have in Sweden. That you just pay money to a, to another guy's phone number, and you know it is smooth. It works fine, but but still, you're being recorded. Okay, le- leaving Sweden aside. Uh, so Bitcoin wasn't the first uh, so-called cryptocurrency, but. Why, why, maybe if you could explain, why did the earlier versions of Bitcoin, so to say, fail? And what, how did um, Bitcoin overcome those uh, failures? I, I, I don't know a lot about the previous attempts at the digital money, uh, but they all suffered from, from something we call a single point of failure. You know, um, if we look at... Well, t- t- for example, trad- if we look at traditional money, if I want to, s- if I want to send money to your bank account, uh, it's going to have to go through a single point, a single entity, like for example, the bank. So I will, t- I, 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 I ask the bank to move money to you, uh, and I trust that the bank does that, and you trust that the bank does that. So we we tr- we trust the bank as a trust. We call it a trusted third party. Uh, and the same was it was the same with these uh, attempts at early, uh, you know, private money or, or uh, early e-gold and whatever. I, I I don't remember the names of them all, but but they all had this in one way or the other a single point of failure that the government could clamp down on and uh, shut down. For example, uh, as you know, a single server where everybody's transaction had to go through in order to to uh, 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 prevent people from double spending their money. Double spending, we have something called the, the double spending problem um, in electronic money. Because if I if I have some el- electronic money on my on my phone, uh, I can. I can spend it to buy pizza, and then I can can go across the street and spend it to buy, uh, spend the same money and uh, to buy a coffee, uh, because the money is digital and digital digital data is infinitely copyable. You can just copy it and and uh, send it to someone else, you know. So you can spend the money twice or as much as as many times you like. Uh, and if you don't have a single point of failure, if you don't have a central authority to to authorize the transactions, uh, it's going to be very hard to prevent people from double spending their money. If you don't have a single point of of, of or a, a central authority, a central database, for example, that verifies that people don't uh, double spend their money. 
So all attempts so far up to up, up before Bitcoin has used some kind of central database to to uh, to verify that people don't double spend their money. Uh, Bitcoin was the first system that solved this problem without a central database uh, that verifies all the transactions. Instead, all the transactions are verified by thousands of computers acro across the globe. Uh, and um, all those systems, all those computers across the globe, we, we call them Bitcoin nodes in Bitcoin. All those, all those uh, nodes verify every transaction and the nodes also create something called a blockchain, which is, the, which is basically the database of Bitcoin. They update this database in a pretty clever manner because um, the, the, blockchain, the blockchain contains all transactions from, uh, from uh, day one. So every transaction ever made is recorded in the Bitcoin blockchain. And it's really hard to update this, this database uh, so that everybody agrees on the contents, on the new contents of the database. And Bitcoin does that with something they call proof of work. So if, if everybody would just update their own copy of the database as transactions come in to their node, uh, the, the, the databases on the different nodes will look complete, will you know, diverge because transactions come in a bit different order on, on each node. And some nodes don't even see all transactions maybe and so forth. So, so in order to, to update the, the database, they need a common protocol, a, a, co a common uh, set of rules on how, to, how it's uh, possible to, or how, it's, how you're allowed to update the database. And that's where, where uh, proof of work comes in. I'm sorry, I, I, I kind of uh, uh, moved on here. Yeah, it's, it's, sure. a, it's a big question for sure. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's very broad and it's hard um, hard to know where to start and stop explaining it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I think someone who completely new to Bitcoin probably one of the first questions they have is uh, who created Bitcoin and why was it created in the first place? Yes. So uh, we don't know who created Bitcoin. There's a pseudonym called Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, it's a Japanese name uh, who actually published a, a paper on a mailing list for crypto cryptography experts. So this Satoshi Nakamoto just uh, uh, published this paper on this mailing list and it, you know, uh, most people just dismissed it at first, but uh, eventually it caught a lot of people at people's attention uh, and gradually more and more people started to looking into it. And it, that was pretty much exactly 10 years ago. I think it was October 2008 uh, that the paper was published. And then in January two, 2009, uh, the first implementation uh, showed up as well, which is now Bitcoin Core. Uh, but but yeah, nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is, and uh, it it might be a group of people, it might be a single person. I I don't know. Nobody knows. 
uh, and we don't even know if they or he or she is alive today. We we just don't know. Yeah, that's a pretty fascinating uh, fact about Bitcoin, you know, the origin uh, story about uh, the secret Satoshi Nakamoto and him, how he just left after getting this uh, massive yeah. project. Uh, and I think it was a pretty wise thing to do to just not reveal himself or herself or themselves um, because Bitcoin is all about verifying data, verifying your financial um transactions and verifying everything uh, without appealing to authority or appealing to some creator. Um, so in order to, to just put himself out of the equation, he, he just not, he just uh, remained anonymous, which I think was, uh, it, it can, it can, it helps people to think for themselves instead of just listening to this creator uh, and trusting the creator. You need to choose. You need to uh, make up your own mind whether you trust Bitcoin or not. Not listen to some guy who is supposedly trustworthy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something that you hear, hear pretty early on when you uh, read about Bitcoin is um, decentralization and. Uh, you can't really have something decentralized if it has a CEO or a foundation or something yeah, or exactly. active that's, founder. That's uh, a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, you, you talked a bit about this already, but if you would continue on decentralization, what does what does that actually mean in Bitcoin? How is it yeah, decentralized? Uh, yeah, Bitcoin is central, decentralized because there is no central database. There is no central server that everybody has to register on or use. Uh, it's a network of thousands of computers running Bitcoin software. And those computers cooperate to, to uh, you know, maintain this Bitcoin database, which we call the blockchain. Uh, and decentralization is important. It's, it's a means to an end. It's not, decentralization is not valuable in and of its own. It's, it's, uh, we need the de decentralization so that transactions cannot be censored or that people's funds cannot be seized or freezed. Um, as in uh, fiat systems, you know, uh, in fiat systems, people get their funds frozen uh, or seized or uh, transactions are being censored all the time uh, for various reasons in, in different countries. Uh, and we've seen a, a lot of examples where, for example, uh, Cyprus, where they seized, uh, I don't remember the exact figures, but uh, a good chunk of every of every euro above 100,000 euros, I think it was, uh, was seized during the financial crisis in Cyprus. And Wikileaks was, uh, was under a blockade, so people couldn't donate to Wikileaks because they, uh, the government pressured uh, Visa and MasterCard to just not permit those transactions. So, in order to avoid freezing or seizing or, or censorship, uh, Bitcoin is des designed to be a decentralized system so that 
in order to in order to take the system down, you need to take every one of those thousands of node nodes down, or otherwise make their uh, uh, communication impossible. So it's a really really hard problem to to uh, kill Bitcoin and to and to censor transactions. So that's why we need decentralization. That's that's why Bitcoin has chosen this model of decentralization. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great answer and um, pretty important for new people uh, uh, coming into the space to really understand because the difference between centralized services or coins or um, blockchains and decentralized is, uh, is kind of like a gray, gray scale uh, and it's hard to actually pinpoint what uh, decentralization actually means. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and as, as you say, it's a it's a scale. Uh, I mean, decentralization is is not uh, either on or off. It's a you know, it's a it's a scale from zero to to well. You can't say that the system is is either decentralized or centralized. It's just more or less centralized. Yes, and and Bitcoin is probably the most uh, decentralized we had so far out there. Yes. Yeah. But let's uh, talk a bit about uh, this database, the blockchain. I think, uh, especially uh, I think in Sweden, the last uh, couple of years, uh, we had a really big hype about uh, blockchain instead of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, what would you say that the hype about the blockchain is about, and is it is it valid? I'm I'm personally personally not very interested in uh, in you know blockchain technology in general uh, private private blockchains and uh, permission ledgers and all you know there are a lot of names for it but um, we we usually you the we usually make the distinction between public blockchains and private blockchains uh, public blockchains are like, or like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies where you don't need permission to, to be a part of it and, and uh, anyone can set up a, a node and, be, and uh, uh, actually contribute to the system security by, by running their own Bitcoin miner, for example. That's a, that's a public blockchain. Uh, a private blockchain uh, is where every participant is known by everyone else. Uh, for example, they use they can use uh, ordinary digital signatures to sign to sign each update to the to the blockchain. Each new block is signed by every or a or a quorum of of those known participants in in the in the in the system. It can be a it can be a network of, of, of computers, but each each of those computers are known to everyone else. Uh, and to be a part of it, you need to ask everyone for, or you need to ask the system for per permission to to actually join the system, which is uh, kind of the the opposite of Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I'm not I'm not very interested in in those kinds of systems because I, I, I maybe there are some use cases that it can be useful in, but I, I just don't see it really. Um, well, to, to summarize, I'm not interested in private blockchains. <laughs> I have been working with them, though, uh, and I think it was good fun to do. Um, but I, I, I don't believe in such technology. 
No, I, I'm uh, I'm definitely kind of on the same page there. I think uh, solving the the better money uh, that Bitcoin is trying to do is uh, is far far more important. Yeah, and far far more interesting to me as well. I mean, from a you know uh, personal view, personal perspective. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we only get get new money every couple thousand years or so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But uh, you said um, another word that I think we haven't talked about uh, yet, and that is uh, miners. And uh, could you elaborate a bit how that, uh, what what a miner is, and uh, how it, uh, what's its place in the ecosystem of Bitcoin? Yeah, so I can try. <laughs> yeah, we have this we have this huge Bitcoin network of computers running Bitcoin software. Uh, and it's such such a such a computer is called a Bitcoin node or a full node. You sometimes sometimes call it a full node or just a node. Uh, and when you make a transaction, if I want to send send a transaction, I want to send Bitcoin to you. Uh, I create something called a transaction, and that's just a, a piece of data specifying uh, basically. That I want to I want to send money from my Bitcoin address to your Bitcoin address. I want to send one Bitcoin, and I sign it with a digital signature. So I I create this transaction, and I send it to the Bitcoin network to one or more nodes on the Bitcoin network, and those nodes will verify my transactions, check that it's uh, correctly formatted, and uh, that it's uh, that the money I spend that they actually actually exist according to their own copy of the blockchain. Uh, and they will also verify that my digital signature is uh, is okay, is, is valid. And if my transaction is valid by that node, uh, the node will propagate that. It, it will, it will uh, forward the transaction to all the neighbors of that node. Um, and the, those neighbors will do the same with this transaction. It will verify against their local copy of the database uh, that the transaction is valid. And uh, if it is, they will just uh, forward it on to their neighbors and so on. So on. This is what we call a gossip network for, for uh, obvious reasons. It's a go gossip network. Um, so, so that's how transactions move across the across the uh, across the uh, network. Now, all all valid transactions need to be entered into the database as well before before they are considered uh, settled or done. So, if if each node would just add the transaction to their database, those databases would differ would start to differ over time because transactions uh, transactions can come into to a node in, in different orders on different machines. I mean, there are th possibly thousands of transactions flowing around uh, at each instance. Uh, so transactions can come in different order on different uh, nodes. So if they would just add their transactions as if the nodes would just add transactions as they come in, uh, the, the databases would start to differ. And in order to solve this, uh, some nodes, not all nodes, but some, some, of, the, some of the nodes are so-called mining nodes or miners. 
or let's let's say let's say like this instead. Uh, I, I I start over. You you have all those nodes uh, wanting to update the, the database. Let, let's just pretend that one node all of a sudden says, "Hey, I want to update the database. Here's my here's my list of transactions that I want to add to the database in this particular order that I specify here, and I call this uh, this uh, I call it a block." That I want to add to the to the database to the blockchain. So one of the nodes just takes the lead and say, "I want to add this uh, block to the blockchain containing all those uh, transactions," and this node sends it out to all the peers, uh, and the peers verify the block. And if it's if the block is okay, then they they all add it, and they uh, will uh, pass it on to their neighbors. So the block will will propagate the network just as the transaction did. And everybody uh, will add this block to their to their version to the local copy of the blockchain. So the problem here is that who gets to make create this new block of data? Who who gets to create the new uh, block of transactions um, to update the database with? And this is where uh, Bitcoin mining comes in. Some some of the nodes in the Bitcoin network are Bitcoin miners. They they compete to be the next leader. They compete to be the one deciding on the on the on the next block. And they do that by by uh, something called proof of work. In order for a block to be valid, in order for for a block to be accepted by all the other nodes on the network. You need to provide a valid proof of work in your block, and that that comes down actually to something called uh, cryptographic hash functions. Now I, I won't go. I, I won't talk cryptographic hash functions, but <laughs> but the the, uh, the miners need to need to uh, do a lot of calculations, and in order to solve a puzzle, let's call it a puzzle. Uh, they need to solve a, a, a very hard puzzle, and they need to. In order to do that, they need to uh, to spend a lot of computer resources, spend a lot of, uh, of energy actually on uh, solving this problem because it's ru running a running a computer takes energy, especially if you need to do a lot of work on the computer. And the first one, the first miner in the network that that succeeds in solving the puzzle gets to decide. Uh, on the next block, so to speak. So, and it takes on average. Th this problem uh, is so hard that it takes all miners together uh, about ten minutes before someone finds the next block. So, on average, every ten minutes, a new block with it will enter the network and propagate the network so that everybody can update their version of their local uh, uh, database, their local uh, blockchain. So proof of work is actually how to select a new leader for the next block. And that's uh, and you you select the leader by uh, demanding that that they produce a lot of work and the block actually inc includes a, a small uh, proof that you have made all the work necessary <laughs> and that's uh, that's obviously then verified by all the others to to verify that 
the miner has actually spent the resources that it claims to have spent. <laughs> did I? <laughs> did no, I, I think too complicated. Well, it here? is a very complicated uh, topic, um, but uh, and it's very hard to explain. I, I I tried it myself a couple of times, but got stuck uh, way earlier than you did. So I think you did a, a good job. Um, one one uh, thing I uh, thought about. Well, so doing all this work, there must be a pretty good incentive to do so. Um, and uh, could you elaborate maybe a bit on that? Why, why is it so many people or computers doing this uh, proof of work? And um, yeah, what's what's the payout, so to say? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I didn't mention that. Uh, yeah. The miners uh, spend a lot of resources, a lot of money on actually finding the next block to make all this, to do all this work. Uh, so with each block today, uh, the winner of the block, the, the new leader will get 12 and a half new Bitcoins for each block, for, for that block. Uh, so every block comes with a, with a few 12 and a half newly minted Bitcoins. And those newly minted bitcoins goes to the miner finding the block. Uh, so the miner is rewarded with newly minted bitcoins for the block. Uh, and that's that's what keeps the miners running their their hardware day and night uh, in order to, you know, uh, be the ones in order to grab those newly created bitcoins. So that that's the miners compete for the new bitcoins. Yes, exactly. And is it because of this uh, reward that the Bitcoin system is so secure? Yeah. Uh, so the system, when you when you say that the system is secure, I su I suppose that you refer to that it's extremely hard to to change data in the in the blockchain. Uh, the, the, the database, uh, you know, the, the blockchain is, is, uh, is distributed. It's, it's like every, every node has a, their own copy of the blockchain. So in, uh, you would think that it's very easy to just change the data in the, in the database, uh, in this blockchain on your local copy. But then you would, uh, the, the problem there is that in order, in order to change something that's uh, 10 blocks back in the database, you need to actually uh, replace that, the, that block 10 blocks back with a, with a new block that you, that you need to create yourself. And to create this new block, this alternate block, spend a lot of resources to actually find a valid proof of work for your alternate block. And that costs you a lot of money. So, and if if you do that, if you if you manage to create this new block, you still you also need to create new blocks the, for for uh, the nine blocks after it, because you changed you changed something ten blocks back. And in order in order for everybody to uh, to accept your new version of of, uh, of the of the reality, your new alternate blockchain, so to speak, uh, you was you need to outcompete the honest version of the blockchain. So we need to create at least 11 blocks, starting with, with the 
with the block 10 blocks back. So we need to create the first alternate block and, and then you need to create a block after that and after that and after that. So 10, you need to create 10 or 11 blocks. Uh, so it's, you, you have to spend a lot of resources to actually replace all those 10 blocks with your alternate version of the history. And that costs you a lot of money. And so far, we haven't seen any real attempts at uh, when miners try to do this because they are incentivized to play by the rules because it's more profitable for them to just mine on the honest blockchain, on honest version of the blockchain, than try to actually uh, alter history. And this is thanks to proof of work because uh, proof of work makes sure that no one can change data for free. You need to spend a lot of resources, spend a lot of money to change that data. So that's that's how Bitcoin is secured by by making the incentives uh, by creating incentives for people to play by the rules. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, yeah, that's a great explanation. Uh, the incentives uh, part is uh, something. You, kind of get to appreciate over time when you learn more and more about Bitcoin for yeah. sure. But how about, uh, I think for, for the new listeners might be thinking that um, what about the inflation rate if these uh, Bitcoins are created um, every block? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. When, when, uh, when Bitcoin started out, each block was worth uh, 50 Bitcoins. You minted 50 new Bitcoins in each block. Uh, and every four every four years, that that reward or this block subsidy, we call it the block subsidy. The block subsidy is cut in half every four years. So now we're down to twelve and a half Bitcoin per block. And in I think in two years' time, we will have another halving to down to six point twenty five uh, Bitcoins per block. And this, you know, this is uh, this is. Uh, um, approaching zero, of course, when you just half and half and half and half over and over, you will uh, approach zero. Um, and eventually it will, the last halvening will just round down to zero and then we will have no uh, new, new lib then we will have no new Bitcoins uh, in anymore in the blocks. So then we have an incentive problems for, for, uh, for the miners. Why would they uh, spend resources when there are no, no block subsidy to be earned? So that's where Bitcoin uh, transaction fees comes in. When I send a transaction to you, I attach a small transaction fee to it that goes to the miner that includes uh, my transaction in their, uh, in their uh, valid block. So for simplicity now, let's say that I, I, I add one Bitcoin as a transaction fee in a transaction to a Bitcoin is like uh, $6,200. Uh, so I wouldn't do that. Uh, but but for simplicity, I, I, I add a one Bitcoin transaction fee for my transaction to. Uh, and I send this transaction out on the Bitcoin network, hoping that some miner will pick it up and put it in their block. And, and eventually uh, win the block race and so that my uh, uh, transaction ends up in the database, in the blockchain. So the transactions are 
uh, and the, the, the miner that, that does this, the miner that adds my transaction gets my Bitcoin, gets the Bitcoin that I added as, as a fee. So that's a second uh, that's a second revenue source for miners. They can get either the block sub subsidy or they got both the block subsidy and the transaction fee, so all transactions in their blocks. So, um, and if I if I don't add a transaction fee to my transaction, uh, my transaction will probably not end up in the blockchain. It's gonna it's gonna sit. It's gonna it's gonna remain pending indefinitely. So today you actually need to add a transaction fee to your transaction in order to get it mined. And to get it mined is to get it into the blockchain. Uh, so as the blocks block subsidy uh, approaches zero, miners will will shift gradually from revenues from uh, uh, block subsidy into revenues from fees. So it's a gradual transition from block subsidy to transaction fees. So the, in, a, in a far future when there are no new Bitcoins mined, uh, minted, uh, trans, uh, the miners will, will get all the revenue from transaction fees. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think that's uh, something very yeah, very important to know when you're getting into Bitcoin, how how all that works out. And yeah, the inflation rate of Bitcoin is something a lot of people is looking closely at as well. Yeah, yeah we haven't talked about that, but but uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has a limited money supply. Uh, you know, fiat, fiat money, traditional money has uh, more or less unlimited money supply, the government or the in the US, you have the Fed, for example, printing new money, and the banks print money through lending as well. I won't go into that, uh, but uh, the governments can basically print money as much as they want. Uh, you have no, the citizens have no control over their own money. Uh, just look at what happens in Venezuela, for example. Uh, their money is being totally uh, devalued because the the government decides to print a lot of money to pay for welfare or national debts or whatnot. And that causes the population's money to uh, tank in value. In Bitcoin, it's totally different. Nobody can change this, uh, the, the money supply of Bitcoin. Well, if everybody agrees, uh, it can be done, but but for practically, it's impossible. Yeah, that has to do with the with the incentives as well, right? Because if if you hold Bitcoin, you don't want someone else to create more of it. Yeah, exactly. So this uh, this scheme with halving the the, the block sub subsidy every four years uh, will create a money supply curve that starts from zero back in 2009 and approaches 21 million. Uh, but it will never exceed 21 million. So the money supply of Bitcoin is 21 million. And that's that's a hard rule. You, you, you just can't change that, that practically. And that's very different from traditional money. It, this is more like gold but even uh, even more strict digital gold is uh, 
is a good way to put it. And uh, yeah. yeah, as as you were about to say, it's uh, it's inflation rate will be even lower than gold in just a few years. And yeah, I think so. Uh, just uh, the next halving, I think, or is it the next? The supply increase in gold is like one and a half percent per year, something something like that. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting discussion about yeah. uh, inflation and deflation. Uh, that I mean, we're probably not gonna get deeper into because that's a rabbit hole in itself uh, <laughs> with the Austrian economics and yeah. Yeah, I recommend everyone to read Safety in Amos book called uh, the Bitcoin Standard. It's a it's a great explainer for how money works and where money comes from and where money is going. Um, I recommend everyone to read it. It's in English, but yeah. No, uh, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of translations for it as well. I think. Yeah, I think in the, it's, it's in like fifteen uh, different languages as well. So yeah, it's a it's a great read. Uh, I think it's hard to understand Bitcoin if you don't understand money in the first place. Yeah, we're gonna start rounding up because we're it's getting late here in uh, Sweden on a Sunday night. Yeah, <laughs> but my idea was for every interview that I would uh, bring up one uh, what I would think is a misunderstanding about Bitcoin that uh, a lot of people have in the, in the beginnings, and uh, let let the guests uh, maybe take it on. Uh, and uh, maybe we should take one um, that we have talked a bit about. And that is that you hear a lot that Bitcoin is centralized because it's controlled by the miners. What would you uh, have to say about that? Yeah, um, I I don't agree. Uh, Bitcoin is not controlled by the miners. I control Bitcoin is controlled by its users, and every user uh, controls bit their own version of Bitcoin. By they define the, their version. The, every user defines Bitcoin as the as the software they run on their computer. So I have I have my own Bitcoin full node in my basement here, with a software program in it on it that run that runs Bitcoin software, and. That software defines Bitcoin for me. And if a miner produces a block that violates my rules that I have on my machine down in my basement, I will not accept that block. So if a miner tries to change the rules, and for example, if, if they want to increase the block subsidy uh, or don't have it or do double the block su subsidy, let's say that. Let's say that miners uh, collude to double the block subsidy and they create these, those new blocks, creating uh, more money than expected. Uh, no one, I, I will not accept their blocks. I will just uh, throw them away and uh, probably blacklist <laughs> or something. No, I, I, would just, I will just ignore their blocks as invalid. And uh, I will sit here and wait until somebody produces a valid block. So miners are not paid to decide the rules. Miners are paid to follow the rules. That's what, what we pay them for. They, they, we pay them to provide security to the blockchain, to the blockchain that, that 
obeys the rules that we, the users, set. So that's that's would that would be my my response. I I think that's a pretty good uh, way to put it and a good place to end it. Uh, I think. Yeah, don't trust, verify. It's a common meme. Yeah, and run a full node. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you have any other tips or recommendations besides uh, Safedine's book for the people who's just getting into the space and want to learn more? Yeah, uh, I definitely think they should check out Grokking Bitcoin, my book. Of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's available as a pre-release already. Uh, so you can buy the book now and get the, get the, uh, the pre-release version. Expect a lot of rough edges there, but uh, I think it's worth it. Uh, it's it's a good read, and you will get the book once it comes out. The where, where can where can people find it? Uh, yeah, you can go to uh, manning.com/books/grokking-bitcoin. Perfect. I, I'll be sure to link it on the website uh, as well and in the show notes. Uh, and uh, where can people follow you? Let's get your uh, Twitter followers uh, up. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm uh, Kalle Rosenbaum at uh, Twitter. It's a long handle, I know, uh, but I haven't bothered changing it. Um, so yeah, that's my handle. It's a really boring handle, but that's that's my handle. Welcome to follow me. <laughs> Perfect. On Twitter. Well, great. I think this uh, will be super valuable for uh, anyone just getting into the space and want to learn more about Bitcoin. Uh, massive thanks for being the first guest on Bitcoin Briefly. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> thanks. Uh, well, uh, hopefully see you on the next conference. Yeah, I hope so too. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Okay, that's it for the first interview of Bitcoin Briefly. I hope you learned something new and uh, be sure to head over to bitcoinbriefly.com, sign up for the newsletter and please share this podcast with your friends and family that you think should learn about Bitcoin. Lastly, I would really appreciate it if you give this podcast a review on iTunes or wherever you find it. And thanks for listening and have a great day.